This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the fruit of the Spirit. today's scripture reading, which is taken from James chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Loving Heavenly Father, we come here again with open hands and with hungry hearts on our journey through a long and dangerous wilderness, and we need you to feed your people again with manna from heaven. And we pray that you would speak today through your life-giving word, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit to see you in your glory, to behold your compassion and your mercy in the face of your Son, and fill us with your Spirit and transform us into his image by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you are new with us today, we are working through a series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And over the last few weeks, we've meditated on love and joy and peace. And those seem to be such sunny and cheerful virtues. Love, joy, peace, those could be words that describe a paradise in the past or in the future. But today we're talking about patience, a virtue for the time in between. Patience implies that life is hard, that things don't always run smoothly, that only through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God, that we live in a fallen world full of pain, frustration, disappointment, evil, and injustice. And if Ken had begun his reading of James 5 at the very beginning, and if you have your Bible open and glance back at the preceding, the first six verses there, you'll see that James has a scorching indictment of the rich who oppress the poor and hoard their wealth and steal the wages of laborers and those working on the farms, people who crush the helpless and murder the innocent. And James like an Old Testament prophet, warns that there is a day of reckoning coming. Not the revolution of the proletariat, but something far more fearful, the vengeance of the living God. The one who hears the cries of the poor and who is coming soon to act on their behalf, to bring justice to this world. And James stands in a long tradition, going all the way back to the Old Testament, the Psalms and the prophets, this sense that, this promise that the wicked are not always going to prosper, 
those who are fat and healthy and secure in this world, who seem to have all things going well for them, the wicked who do not know God, who oppress the blameless, there is a promise that it's not always going to be so. But God will redeem the righteous who put their hope in him. And I emphasize that setting to point out that James' message on patience here is not a nice little talk he's giving at a ladies' conference at one of those expensive spa-slash-resorts. He's talking, he's writing to these little groups of Christians, these little house churches, and most of the members are slaves and the urban poor and subsistent laborers who are experiencing economic oppression and for many of them physical and even sexual abuse. These are Christians who are suffering. And what James urges on these believers and what the Spirit urges upon us today who are listening to the living word of God is not a stoic resignation to the blind forces of fate, nor is he talking about a sort of Buddhist detachment from the passions. James is talking about the will to stand fast in the storm because the deliverance of God is at hand. A God who hears the groans of his people, who listens to their anguished prayers, who is moved by them. And even now, this God is on the move to rescue his people from evil forever and bring them into the safety and abundance of the promised land. And in the meantime... While we wait for God to act, James says, we need to possess our souls in patience. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Because unlike love and joy and peace, patience is a temporary virtue that we need and we urgently need for our lives right now in the present evil age. There was no requirement for patience in the Garden of Eden, and there will be no necessity for patience in the heavenly Jerusalem. But here, as we journey through the wilderness, as we live together in the last days, there is no fruit of the Spirit that we should be praying for with more desperation and more urgency than the gift of patience. Because as Jesus himself said, only the one who endures to the end will be saved. We need the ability to stand fast in the face of suffering and evil and difficulty and frustration. Let me define patience for you today from the Bible, really. I think we can define patience as the capacity to endure a long period of difficulty without losing heart. The capacity to endure a long period of difficulty without losing heart. A long period. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for patience is simply the word long. And if you have an old English translation like the King James, you'll often see patience translated as long-suffering an archaic word that maybe we need to resurrect. Because what the Holy Spirit wants to work in each of our lives is the capacity to suffer for a long period. To be kind of people 
who are able to be still and wait on the Lord. Whatever terrible things we might be going through. Now, I doubt very much that many of us are praying fervently for God to give us opportunities to grow our patience. And it's not just that we're afraid of pain. That's natural. It's also that we really dislike waiting. And patience is all about waiting. James turns our attention to the farmer who waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and summer rains. And farming, of course, demands a lot of work, a lot of energy input, but at least before industrialized, chemicalized, technologized agriculture came along, farmers were at the mercy of the seasons and at the elements. And for all the labor they put in, all the sweat that they shed, the farmer could only ultimately wait for the gift, for the turning of the seasons, for the gift of the sun and the rain from heaven, and for this mysterious process of germination happening underground. Waiting is hard. And waiting feels like a waste of time. And we grow angry because God seems incredibly inefficient with time. With our time that we want to own and control and spend according to our terms. And we chafe in frustration, don't we, when we're forced to wait. One of my very uh, first trips overseas by myself was, it was a business trip and I, to Bangladesh. And I took a little side trip to Nepal. And I, I wasn't really thinking as I planned my return journey because I ended up buying a ticket that took me 60 hours in transit. There was a flight from Pokhara to Kathmandu, from Kathmandu to Dhaka, Dhaka to Bangkok, Bangkok to Osaka, Osaka to Vancouver. And every single airport, there was about an eight-hour wait, just a little too short for me to go to hotel and rest. And as you can imagine, after 60 hours in transit, I was absolutely destroyed. And we landed at the Vancouver airport, and then the plane just sat on the tarmac for an hour. It shouldn't have been hard. All I had to do was literally sit there and do nothing. And I was ready to tear my eyeballs out of my head. And I can totally understand that American guy who, like, ripped open the emergency exit and slid down the slide (laughs) at the airport after four hours on the tarmac. I totally get being willing to pay the $25,000 fine and spending months in prison because just sitting there doing nothing, not being in control of where you are or what you can do, is extremely difficult. The late David Bailey Harnard wrote a book called Patience, How We Wait Upon the World. I have to confess, I kind of skimmed the book because it was a little too long for me. I get the irony. (laughs) But he points out in, in in his meditation on patience that we all share an assumption that real life is about activity. A rich, full life, we all assume, is about achieving things, getting things done, exercising, initiative, being in constant motion. And we find it hard to believe that a rich, fulfilling, meaningful life could involve waiting, 
passivity, slowness, contemplating, reflecting, listening, stillness, and responsiveness. Because we would all rather act than be acted upon. In English, we use patient both as an adjective and a noun. A patient comes from the Latin word to suffer. A patient in the hospital is someone who suffers, someone who is acted upon. And we have a lot of people in this congregation that have shown up here studying to be physicians. They want to be doctors, and they are exhausting themselves over a six-year program for that ambition. No one has ever showed up in TICF and told me, I am studying to be a patient. I wanted to be a lawyer, but my parents have been pressuring me. No, we want you to develop MS. We want you to spend the rest of your life in an iron lung. We want you to be lying there, passive, being acted upon. Because to be a patient is to be someone who is not in control. To be someone who is acted upon. We'd all rather be the person in the scrubs or in the white coat with the clipboard who knows all the Latin words than the person who is sitting there or lying there being prodded and pushed and poked, having things inserted into them, perhaps even rendered unconscious to be cut open so things can be taken out and, or put inside of you. To be a patient is to lose agency and to lose control. Other people are doing things to you. And if we're honest, that's one of our greatest fears. And I think most people, even more than terrible, painful suffering, are afraid of becoming a vegetable or someone in a wheelchair who needs to be pushed around and cared for by other people. It's easy to see a rich, fulfilling, meaningful life as a physician, much harder to imagine it as a patient. But in his book, Harnard asks this penetrating question. He asks, what if we are most fully human when we receive, not when we achieve? What if we're most fully human, not when we're acting, but when we are being acted upon? Not when we are the active party, but the passive recipient. What if we're most human when we allow something or someone outside ourselves to reveal themselves to us, to encounter us? And maybe our most profound encounter with ultimate beauty and goodness and truth is not when we are in constant motion, comfortably in control with our agenda and our plan and our achievements, shielded and protected from our busyness and productivity, what if it happens when we're weak and passive? You know, one of the very hardest things for human beings to do, especially now in our fast-paced, instant, result, instant results, smartphone-addicted age, is to sit quietly in a room and do nothing. At the Louvre, the museum in Paris, which attracts millions of tourists every year, they collect data on their visitors. 
Do you know how long the average visitor to the Louvre spends looking at the Mona Lisa? One of the greatest paintings of all time? 15 seconds. Imagine that. You show up to the Louvre, you've come halfway across the world, you've flown across the ocean, you glance at this painting before you swipe and move on to the next. You're not really going there to see the Mona Lisa. You're going there to say you've seen it, right? To get your Instagram photo, to brag to other people, to check another piece of art off your bucket list, but you've never actually experienced this great work of art because you were not willing to surrender control to it for a moment. Jennifer Roberts is an art history professor at Harvard University, and one of the most difficult assignments she gives her students is to choose a piece of art and then to sit in front of it for three hours, simply to take it in. And she says, you know what, it's only when we decelerate, when we slow down and quietly take in a piece of art, when we surrender our senses to it, and let it work on us, only then will the deep rhythms and patterns of meaning and that art reveal themselves to us. This is not something that's granted to the impatient, though. And perhaps there's a lesson there for us, because we assume that we can best serve God by leading energetic, busy, productive lives. And there are many of us who passionately love God, and there are great things that we want to do for the kingdom of God. But what if God is actually not that interested in all the things you want to achieve for him, as though God were somehow in some desperate need for your contribution to the kingdom? What if God is actually more interested in what he can give us, what God can do for us and to us? And maybe what we all need is simply to slow down. Perhaps to be forced to slow down if we refuse to tap the brakes ourselves. So that we can have a deeper encounter with the face of God. Where we allow ourselves to be acted upon by the spirit of God. Where we surrender our control, our plans, our ambitions And we entrust ourselves to the plan of God. Instead of bringing our plans, ambitions, and desires to God and demanding that he bless them and give them his stamp of approval. In this very book, James is warning Christian business people who say, oh, you know what, tomorrow in such and such a city, I'm going to do this and this. And James says, no, no, wait a second. Only if the Lord wills is any of that stuff going to get done. We need to submit ourselves to God's agenda, which in the end will be much more fruitful than our own. And it's only the conviction that God has a plan, that he is wise and sovereign and faithful and good, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. That is the conviction that shapes our patience. And if you do not believe that deep down in your soul, you will be an angry, impatient, frustrated person. Patience is filled with faith and hope. Patience is not sagging backwards in despair. It's stretching forwards, looking to the horizon for the returning king. 
patience is not a defeated resignation to the cruelty of life. It's hope-filled endurance where we draw our courage to carry on from the conviction that there will be an end to these troubles, that the Lord's coming is near, that Jesus is at the door, that although we are called to long-suffering, we are not called to endless suffering, that though we may weep for the night, joy will come in the morning. And this time that we all inhabit together, these long, dark, cold hours before the dawn, is an age marked and defined not just by our waiting for God, but God's own waiting. Because we worship a God who waits, a God who is patient. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. Peter writes in his second letter, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's the patience of God that is holding back the fires of judgment upon the world. Because God chooses to give space and to give time to his creatures to respond to him. And the patience of God has been evident since the fall. Our first parents were not immediately destroyed when they disobeyed. God did not immediately execute death upon them. And in fact, the whole Old Testament is a long tale of God's supernatural patience with his grumbling, complaining, whining, idolatrous, rebellious, sinful people. And the very tedium that you experience chewing and grinding your way through your Old Testament readings is actually a sign of the long-suffering of God. A God who declares himself to be a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who again and again relents from sending calamity, who over and over says to Israel, I am not finished with you yet. And also a God who says to you every single week here, I am not finished with you yet. The patience of God The long-suffering of the Creator is what upholds the universe. It turns out that God is not in a hurry. He has all the time in the world. And God doesn't feel pressure. He doesn't feel stress. He doesn't feel anxiety. All those things that drive us to impatience. God is in serene control over all things. And in his wisdom, God is ordering everything in this universe and weaving it together toward his good ends. And I want to suggest today that our own impatience, our angry refusal to accept delay and disappointment, is because we are not deeply rooted in God. Because we've just glanced at God for 15 seconds before moving on. And we have failed to decelerate to be still in God's presence and allowing ourselves to know that he is 
God. That the Lord Almighty is with us. God is patient with his people. He is patient with each one of us. Incredibly long-suffering. And frankly, we should all be ashamed of how slow we are to change. Of all the things that we have promised God in prayer, all the resolutions we've made, all the repentances we've promised, and how little in comparison we've given God with our lives. The glacial pace of our progress in holiness. And yet, God is not angry with us. He's not frustrated and annoyed. And we come day after day, week after week, and God welcomes us. He's happy to see us here. He reminds us, you are forgiven for Christ's sake. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins have been hurled into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. And if that is how patient God is with me, how patient ought I to be with my brothers and sisters gathered around me? Don't grumble against one another, James says in verse 9, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. How easily our own impatience with God manifests itself against others. James is not talking here about violent explosions of rage, but petty grumbling, low-grade irritation and annoyance at the faults of others. And if you have any real relationships in your life, if you live in any community at all, you will see faults. Believe me. Simply ask your best friend to become your roommate, and you will discover how annoying another person can be. And of course, we could spend a long time offering many reasons from Scripture to be patient with others, reflecting on how irritating and annoying we are ourselves. To our, we're completely unaware of this, but people are actually constantly forbearing and bearing with us and forgiving us. And of course, we remind ourselves how patient and gracious and forgiving God is with us who generously forgives our massive debt, and then we go and grab the other servant by the throat and refuse to be patient with them. What James picks up on here, what he reminds us of, our master Jesus' warning not to judge others, lest we ourselves be judged. He says, the judge is standing at the door. The handle is turning. And we are foolish enough to climb into the judge's bench, to put on his robe, to pick up his gavel, and to render condemnation against our brother or sister. How will the true judge react to that when he enters his chambers? And when we judge and condemn our brothers and sisters, we are denying the power of the gospel for ourselves. We're saying, this is the economy that I want to live in. Not an economy of long-suffering, but of short-temperedness. Not an economy of forgiveness, but one of judgment. Not an economy of grace, but one of vengeance. And we are forgetting the love and the patience of God. 
And in Scripture, this patient God sends messengers to appeal again and again to his people, turn to me, repent, you will be forgiven. And these prophets are called not just to preach this message of patience with their words, but actually to demonstrate it with their lives. Brothers and sisters, James writes, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And trust me, to be an Old Testament prophet was a thankless job. I don't know what the job satisfaction ratings for that career would be. I expect very low. Because it turns out that doing God's will does not mean immunity from suffering. The more faithful a prophet was to speak God's word, the more he would suffer. And we have a long list of prophets who suffered in obedience to God. Moses, spending 40 years with the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. Jeremiah, lowered into a cistern and left to die there. Ezekiel, his wife, the light of his eyes taken from him. Hosea, perhaps even worse, called to marry a prostitute as a sign of God's incredible grace and patience. And yet James says, centuries later, we count as blessed those who have persevered. As we look back on the completed lives of these people of God, we honor them for their fortitude and we recognize God's pronouncement of favor upon these people. And then James reminds us of a specific example. He reminds us of the perseverance of Job and what the Lord finally brought about. Job's life is a story of someone who had everything and then God allowed it to be torn away from him. God gave Satan permission to take away Job's possessions, his children, his health, everything but his life. The book of Job is a long book. And through 40 chapters, we find this man of God wrestling painfully with his maker. We might well say we've heard of the impatience of Job. Because Job expresses his confusion, his frustration. He has many questions. He's willing to challenge God very boldly, more boldly than most of us would dare to do. But yet, Job refuses to let go of God and to let go of his faith. And even though he cannot understand God's purposes, and even though in his suffering, he cannot see God's justice. Job's determination is this. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And then we see what the Lord finally brings about for Job. Something much more, I think, than the restoration of his fortune and a new family. An encounter with the living God. Who speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and reveals his glory to him. The very thing that God wants to do in each of our lives. It's about more than prosperity. It's about more than comfort. It's about more than ease. God wants you to encounter him. And in our sin and darkness, most of us, quite frankly, are not willing to pay that price. Job would never have volunteered for this experience. And God, in his severe mercy, brings us through things that we would never choose 
for ourselves. To experience a grace and a glory that we cannot imagine. And this all comes to us through Jesus. In the gospel, we see that God reveals his patience supremely through his son. We confess in the creed that Jesus came to suffer under Pontius Pilate. It's incredible to reflect that God became a human being in order to give up control. To be bound and to be handed over. To allow himself to be acted upon. To permit suffering and evil to happen to him. As he entrusts himself completely to the goodness of God. To this you were called. Peter writes. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. As a human being, Jesus entrusted himself to the goodness of God and to the justice of God. This is what salvation is means. In the 1970s, the Japanese theologian Kosuku Koyama wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three Mile an Hour God. Because that's the pace at which Jesus did his ministry. Walking around Galilee at the rate of about three miles an hour. A more inefficient ministry it would be hard to imagine. As Jesus wastes his time on a small group of unimportant people. But love slows down even more. And at the cross, Koyama writes, Jesus lost his mobility. He was nailed down. He's not even at three miles an hour as we walk. He is not moving. Full stop. What can be slower than full stop, he writes, nailed down. And it's at this point of full stop that the apostolic church proclaims that the love of God to man is ultimately and fully revealed. God walks slowly because God is love. Brothers and sisters, I wish I could promise each of you immediate relief from suffering, from pain, from sickness, from difficulty. I cannot do that. Because Jesus told his followers, only through many tribulations will you enter the kingdom of God. Here is what I can tell you in full confidence this afternoon. We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with us 
in our weaknesses because he himself suffered. And when Jesus calls you to bear the cross, a cross you do not want, one that you would never choose, he is not asking you to carry something that he has not carried himself. And when he asks you to suffer, when he asks you to carry the cross, he is inviting you into the fellowship of his suffering. Because the only way we can know Jesus as he really is, is to meet him in suffering. And there is a way of knowing Jesus that cannot happen for you when everything is going well in your life, when you are enjoying perfect health and your bank account is full and everyone loves you. Jesus wants something deeper for you. And he is willing to allow you to experience grief and pain and agony because through that, he is calling you to a profound experience of the love of God. And thank God, Jesus does not send you into that alone. Because he is the one who promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. I will sustain you. I will protect you. Stand firm. Endure by the power of my Holy Spirit. This is not something you can do at all in your own flesh or in your own power. But I'm giving you my spirit to strengthen you and empower you to wait the hardest thing of all. And behold, I am coming soon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is hard for us to wait. It is hard for us to be still. It is hard for us to experience suffering. Merciful High Priest, we cry out to you. We cry out on behalf of our brothers and sisters here who are enduring agony as they follow you. And we ask, merciful Lord, that you would reveal your incredible compassion to us. We pray that our suffering, our affliction, our tribulation would not be wasted, that it would not be in vain. Lord, glorify yourself through our life, whether we're called to be active, achieving things for you, or passive, suffering things for your namesake. What we want most of all, O oh Lord, is to be close to you wherever you call us to be. And we need your grace. We need your spirit. For those who are suffering, we ask, Lord, if it is your will, if it is your timing, give them relief. Answer their prayers, O oh Lord. Bring healing. Bring deliverance. Bring salvation. And if in your mysterious plan you call us to wait, O oh Lord, do not let any of us wait alone. Pour your sustaining grace into their lives. Be their sustaining presence, O oh Lord, we pray. 
And Lord Jesus, come soon. Come soon, O Lord. A hurting world is waiting for you. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Come soon, O Lord. Bring our troubles to an end. Usher in your kingdom. Where patience is no longer needed, but we can experience your love, your joy, and your peace in all its fullness. In your mighty, gracious, merciful, compassionate name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.